Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Injured at work in a motor vehicle accident or had a fall in a public space? Speak to Your Claim Lawyers, a no-win, no-fee, personal injury claims law firm that specialises in maximising compensation claims for injured people. Call 1-800-YOUR-CLAIM or yourclaimlawyers.com.au. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. As always, great to have your company for another edition of This Is Your Sporting Life as we celebrate the life of another great Australian sportsman. At this time of the year, football's over and done with and uh, a lot of attention turns to racing of different kinds, horsepower of different kinds. Of course, uh, the big thoroughbred racing, but also there is that little event that goes on at Mount Panorama, which is so much a part of the Australian sports landscape. And my guest this morning has been part of that event and has won it six times. Craig Lowndes. Craig, welcome. Yeah, thank you very much and thanks for having us. It's a really exciting time of the year for you guys. I guess you get a bit of spring in your step. Everybody does, but Bathurst has got that mystique about it, so it must make things a little bit easier to get out of bed in the morning at this time of oh, year. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the, the, the good part, as you said, it, it's this time of year, I think it's really exciting to have, and I grew up in Victoria, so I, I'm a still a big follower of AFL. Um, and basically you have you know, the AFL, the NRL, then you've got what we call our grand final. Although it's it's part of the championship, and, and I remember it being a standalone race, um, which there is a bit of argument whether it still should have been or still should be a uh, standalone race. But look, um, it's a great event. Uh, it's the race that I've always grown up watching, wanted to be part of. Um, and I still remember the days when I first went there in sort of early 90s, 94, as a, as a sort of a, a co-driver to Brad Jones, but in the same team as Peter Brock. And, uh, you know, you, you think back on those times now to where we are right now. Cars have massively um, evolved and changed. Teams have, personnel has, and, uh, and really it's, it's a, it is a great time of year. In a few weeks' time, the Melbourne Cup is going to be run. And uh, David Hayes, hopefully, we're going to have as a guest on the program. And he often talks about the fact that it's Australia's race. It might not be the best race as far as thoroughbreds is concerned. Is Bathurst the best race, though, for you guys each year, or is it Australia's race? Uh, I think it's it's the best race, in my my opinion. And, and, and Jamie Winkup, my teammate, we have different opinions like this the race itself is probably one of the greatest if not the greatest here in Australia um, and I've always said I've always wanted to win a Bathurst over a championship but if you ask Jamie Jamie will say a championship over Bathurst but uh, so hopefully between the two of us we can we can clean up the, the sort of the series and a Bathurst for the team but Bathurst for us is a, a globally recognized event around the world so been lucky enough to, to race overseas and do other things and when you talk about supercars here in Australia they all talk about Bathurst and it's something that it's an it is an iconic 
venue. Um, it's the longest racetrack, highest altitude that we and, and elevation that we race here in Australia. Um, and you talk to, again, a lot of the uh, international European drivers, they all want to come and experience it because we keep talking it up, and it is. And, and what we say is true. It's We, we see it as, as the best race as a part of our calendar. What's the most exciting part of the track? From a viewer's point of view, there are so many different parts of the track where you flat knacker down Conrod Strait or when you're going over the top. From a driver's point of view, what's the best part? Going across the top of the mountain for me is the best part of it because you spend two-thirds of your time climbing it and a third coming off it. So getting to the pinnacle of it, which is sort of McPhillamy, and then before you go into Skyline, down through the Dipper, down into Forest Elbow, that little section there, you've got to be committed, you've got to be focused. Um, and when you've got a car that's working well... Um, uh, flows well, you can be really quick and make up a lot of time. And it really is a gutsy track. Um, and I've been caught out. I think that, you know, my, I first won it back in uh, 96. I went back in the end of 97, thought that, you know, it's gonna be, this is going to be easy because I, I won it in my third attempt. But then it took me another 10 years to finally win it again. And that was really what showed me the, the magnitude of what the event is. It, you know, we all talk about a $2 part failing and put you out of the race. Uh, but... I've learned also too, I, and I've spoken about this, I don't want to lead the race at the start of the race because you become, it's like the tortoise and the hare. You become the target and you've got to set the pace. You've got to run out front. You don't want to be out there. You want to be sitting back, probably almost like the Melbourne Cup. You want to be sitting in the pack yeah. and then you want to pounce when it's right time. It's interesting you should draw the analogy about um, the race and, and just the way that you should go through it because, um, and in particular what you were saying about thinking that it was going to be easy after you'd won it. A lot of footballers say the same thing. They get to a grand final early in their career and they just expect that it's going to keep on going like that. And then the reality hits you that it's not that easy after all. Well, it's not. and We're, we're a bit fortunate Football players and, and any sort of contact sport, obviously, you know, for body um, conditioning and, and look, whether you get an ankle injury or out shoulder or whatever, but we're quite fortunate enough we don't get that side of it. But uh, it, it all comes also down to a co-driver. We, we're very reliant on a co-driver right now. Uh, and, and it, you know, Steve Richards running with us again this year. And, and Steve and I have, have grown up as that, uh, I suppose, age bracket of the next generation in the early days. I've raced against him in many forms of racing. And now we've come together. We, we like the car the same way, which is really fortunate. We have the same height, same weight. So getting in and out of the car, the transition in and out of the car is quite easy. Like you'll see a lot of drivers that are either short, tall, um, out, out of weight or in a sense of size, and they've got to put inserts in. It's just another, another complexity that can go wrong through a pit stop. So if you can minimise all that, um, it definitely gives you an opportunity to, to be a, um, you know, much smoother, much more quicker uh, stop. But you're right, it, it's, I've been there many, many years when you've had good cars and you've been the fastest car, but you've not won because of other circumstances. So it become a very much a, uh, a circuit or an event that it just keeps you attracting you back because you just want to keep winning it. You mentioned Steve Richards. To be a co-driver, do you have to be good mates or can you actually not get on that well at all just so long as you're both bloody good drivers? Oh, look, it's, it's, it's better if you get along. It's not a necessity, but the same focus. Teams choose drivers or co-drivers 
that A, fit the bill of the height, the weight, but also the attitude and you fit into the philosophy of the team. And, and you know, every team is slightly different and, and we're all human. We are all different. So the philosophy within a team is completely different from, from us to a, um, you know, to anyone else, like to a Penske team or, or anyone else. The, the, the dynamics and the philosophy is always different. So when you've got a teammate that fits in well, um, and as I said, fits all the, all the characters, you want to hang on to them as long as you can. And Richo and I, but this is our fifth year together. So, uh, and we've, we've won Bathurst in, back in 15. Uh, so that's really for us is a, a massive gain for me to have that confidence that when I hand the car over to Richo, that it's going to come back in the same way. He, he stays out of trouble. He's, he's, he's like the, the brick you know, he just, or rock. He just goes around, circulates, stays out of trouble, and he brings the car back. You're both highly credentialed drivers. You've got fantastic CVs. Is there a leader or is it the sum of equal parts when you have co-drivers? Uh, well, the way we operate, we don't have a lead. Like, obviously, I've spent more time in the car because being the number one driver in this car for the year. So Steve sort of relies on me to, to, to set the car up. You know, we'll qualify the car, but then that's it. You know, we want him to be able to, to progress that, like the, the changes we make in the car, the way we develop the car, you know, even if he has to start the car at the start of the race. Like the, you know, it doesn't matter for me who starts it. And, and really, to be honest, it doesn't matter who finishes it. Long as if, if Richo on the day is faster than me, I'm happy to, for him to finish it because we collectively want that result, which is be on the top step. How many people are on the team, Craig? When you get to Bathurst, apart from the two blokes who are steering the car around the track, how many of you are there on the team on the day? We, we carry three cars. We, we, we circulate three cars, so obviously six drivers. But you've got roughly about 50 personnel there that covers a broader things. You know, we have... Obviously, um, catering. Uh, we cater for ourselves, uh, which is great. So there's got a uh, that side of it. You got your marketing team that comes along, does all the PR and all that side of it, uh, merchandising, and then you've got basically the mechanical side of it, which runs the three operates the three cars. So massive um, undertaking from the team because uh, we we grow for Bathurst because of the enormity. Uh, we literally take everyone from the workshop, and that's really something for us is a is a big logistic movement of people, you know, accommodation, flights, travel. We fly into Sydney, we drive out. Um, you know, all that side of it is just, you know, we don't talk about that or no one really talks about it, but it's a massive infrastructure that the team has to undertake. And there's also the corporate side that you as racing drivers and uh, one thing that impresses me about you guys, you're always very aware of your sponsors. You're aware of who's paying the bills and there are appearances and various things that you need to do. So your time is very precious throughout that week. Oh, absolutely. You know, no different to any other race weekend. We get our schedule prior to the to the weekend and prior to us leaving. So we know from minute to minute where we got to be, what we got to do, who we're seeing, what we got to wear, um, you know, and basically, you know, we're... When now race drivers have got to be more than just driving a car. You've got to, you know, you know, you've got to get up, got to be able to present yourself. You've got to be able to talk about, you know, different um, circumstances, whether it's good, bad. Um, you know, relate to the sponsor, which is obviously very important for the team and for yourself. Um, so it really is a, a complete difference for me when I first started. You know, when I first started back back in the nineties, it was just driving a car, getting out. We had six races a year. It was really cruisy. Now we've got sixteen rounds of the championship. We've got a huge demand in the sense of the the commercial side of it. We've got to attract sponsors to obviously pay the bills for us to go racing. Uh, so it, it, it's a catch twenty two. You've got to you've got to learn how to to, to deal with all that side. Of, especially if you're not performing on track. When you're performing on track, like winning a football 
uh, game, it's easy. Everything's easy. You can do interviews. You'll do everything. But when you're not winning, that's when it's really a gritty thing that you've really got to take in consideration of what you need to do. You touched on something before, catering as part of the team. Just take us behind the scenes and say on a day like Bathurst, a long day, what's a driver eat throughout the day? Do you need to be careful what you eat? Uh, we, well, I've, uh, I eat everything and anything. Um, I've been fortunate enough that, uh, you know, I haven't really been on any strict diets, but obviously we all train very heavily. Uh, and when I say training, we're not like sprinters or anything else like that. We're longevity or long distance. So anything for us is, you know, uh, you know a 100-kilometre bike ride, you know, a, a 10, 15-kilometre run. Um, it's all sort of two- to three-hour sort of durations of training, not just that short twitch sprint. Um, so for us, uh, we, the caterer, uh, Mario, he actually works, well, he's employed by the team and he works within the team at home base. So he actually caters for the team every other given day. But he then obviously takes a crew. We go to Bathurst uh, like this weekend and, and, you know, we all eat slightly differently, but very similar. Um, so, you know, for instance, the morning breakfast for me would be like a poached egg on toast with some avocado. Um, then we go into lunch. Um, you know, I'll have like a chicken wrap or a pasta, you know, with tomato-based pasta. Um, Jamie normally has a sandwich, like a you know a ham and uh, ham sandwich. Um, Shane sort of very similar. He'll have a he'll have a pasta, uh, and then of course dinner is 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 a variety. So it could be um, steak, could be fish. Um, or we'll always have fresh vegetables, steamed vegetables, um, potatoes, and then of course you know if you're good enough, you, you're allowed enough to have dessert, which then obviously goes into the other end. But uh, uh, again, we're catering for for multiple teams, not only ourselves. So th- that side of it is just a massive organisation as well. One thing we know from being taken inside the cockpit of the car is how warm or not warm, hot it can get in there. What about the intake of fluids throughout a race? as long as Bathurst. Uh, well, the good thing about what Red Bull have done to us a long time ago is put Jamie and I through a sweat test. So that was the first thing was to, to, to work out our body uh, DNA of how much we sweat. So we actually then can calculate how much we need to rehydrate. So for me, I'm very lucky that uh, the way my body um, is designed, I don't sweat a lot. So I can get out of a car after an hour and, and look like this and people go, wow, you look really fit which is great, uh, but it's obviously the internal of me um, combusts. So I've got to make sure I'm, I'm conscious of that. Where Jamie's on the other end of the scale, he sweats profusely. So he he will take intake of, of you know, a, a mixture of water and um, his hydrolyte tablets anywhere between six and eight litres a day. So, But that's what he needs to operate. So again, you've got to be very cognizant of what you need. For me, again, I'll stop drinking prior to getting into a car about an hour before, so then I can need to go to the toilet. I'll do that. Don't have a problem when I'm in the car. But we carry about a two to three litre container, or, or like a, a camel pack on the back of our seats in the car. We do drink while we drive, but it's more of a just keeping the moisture and, and the fluids up, not necessarily drinking to hydrate. Uh, we've got the ability through the stops and especially these endurance races, to be able to not only put fuel and tyres on the car, but to refill those drink containers because you've got multiple... We're in the car at Bathurst. This weekend will be sort of six and a half hours. So we rotate, obviously, Steve and I, but we got we need the ability to fill it up all the time. Um, so, again, it's it's that side of it is massively um, important to hydrate. We use ice baths now to recover, uh, very much like you know our physio has actually come from the Brisbane line. So a lot of the stuff that we've learnt and we, we now do is come from the AFL background, and which is great for us. But again, when I first started, we didn't have any of that. We just go home, get on a plane, turn up to work the next morning, 
and then get on with it. Like, but now it's all about you know the hydration, the food, the recovery, the the, the preparation going into race weekends. And like this weekend, it's a massive week, so you got to make sure you don't drain your energy at the start of the week. Make sure you're right to go for, for Sunday. You mentioned the time in the car. When you finish the race, and hopefully you're the first one to see the chequered flag and you get out of the car, are you more physically exhausted or are you more mentally exhausted? For a race like Bathurst, for me, mentally. Because it's actually not a, a, a high. In the, it's, it's up there in the physical sense. But because you've got Conrod straight, Mount, uh, Pitt straight, and then Mountain straight, so almost a th- you almost say half of the race track is a straight road. So you don't have to do anything. But it's the mental side of it going across the top of the mountain where you've got to position the car, flow the car, brake the car, make sure you're in the right gear, all that sort of stuff. That's the mental side of it. So for me, at the end of a Bathurst, I'm not physically tired, but I'm mentally drained because you're switched on for six and a half to seven hours, regardless whether you're in a car or not. Because even when you're outside a car, you get out, put Steve in, you run away for sort of like even five, ten minutes, either get changed, have a shower, have a drink, get some food, but then you're back in the garage sitting there on standby in case he has a cramp or he he, he has an issue, he, feel, he he falls ill. So you're on standby. So regardless whether you're in or out of the car, you're still on standby for those six and a half hours. So you never switch off. You never switch off. You try to, but you can't. You, you, you Unfortunately, you can't. So again, while, even while we're sitting in the garage, we'll have a set of can headsets on. We're hearing the comms between car and pit. So again, if, if Steve's, you know, comes up with a vibration, gearbox, steering, brakes, whatever, we know before we get in the car what's going on. So uh, we're, we're right there at hand. And again, when we get out of the car, first, re- first port of call is to talk to the engineer, what's going on with the car? Can I feel an issue that I haven't reported? Because the other thing that the category does very well is we all scan each other's radio frequencies on other teams. So we know what other teams are doing. If they've got problems, they're, they're you know, driving around an issue or anything else. Um, so we, we really focus on other people's team comms as well. So, of course, we most of us all talk in codes, so we don't know what's going on. I was going to ask you about that because we often see that in Formula One races as well. And the Formula One teams now speak in a completely different language when they're trying to communicate with the driver at times. So there are the codes that you've got that hopefully will put the other teams off the track. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So it's all get smart stuff, is it? It is, and it's all all the language that you learn and develop within this team. And and it really is funny because, you know, you'll have – You'll have a radio call and it could be anything. I'm just trying to think of one of the ones we've used before, like you know your cool suit's freezing because it, the car gets scanned or, or analysed as we're driving it. It all gets feed back to the garage. So the, the engineers that sit at the back of the garage are checking the engine temps, gearbox temps, the fuel consumptions, you know everything and anything. So you know it could be a cheeky little radio call saying you know, your, your cool system uh, or your cool suit is getting hot, which that could be a code. I pit this lap. Um, but you're not yeah. communicating that to the rest of them. Or you would say, all right, um, pit this lap, which then for me is like, don't pit, but we're trying to force the others to come in. So there's all these little games that go on, the mental games that go on behind the scenes, which people, most people are pretty educated now and, get, and, and now up to, up to speed with what we do. Have you ever heard stories, because obviously you're busy driving the car most of the time, but have you ever heard stories from the, the guys uh, in the pits about a message that's come out from another team, you know, just the most weird, obscure thing that they've said on the radio? Oh, look, there's, 
we we get relayed information from other cars, especially the cars we're chasing or, or racing around. If there's an issue of of a brake or a, or a problem, or or the driver's got a cramp or something's going on, um, any bizarre one? I can't think of any bizarre ones. I know every every driver's got their own personality, which is also great for the sport. So you know, we always we talk about this uh, rubbing's racing. So when you ever ever rub or tap someone from behind, you know the drivers that that's going to disturb them in the sense of their mental pathway and uh, you know I won't name any drivers but I know there's a couple of drivers if you just keep tapping them consistently they'll start squealing on the radio to the crew and then of course when we know that's happening it's effective it's working they're not thinking about the car where they're driving what what the what the apexes are they're worried about me tapping them on the back of the car it's fascinating to get the insight because we're so used to watching it from a different perspective and to take us inside the cockpit is, um, I'm sure, something that people have enjoyed for the last 15 minutes or so. We're going to take a break and then I want to come back and find out where it all started and probably go-karting because for most of you it did start that way. We'll find out with Craig Lowndes on the other side of the break. On This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. More with Craig coming up in a moment. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. A great pleasure on this very special weekend in Australian motorsport to have Craig Lowndes as my guest. Obviously, he is not live. Obviously, we're recording this before Bathurst. One thing I did want to talk to you about before we start with your origins, Sandown, a couple of weeks ago, they went to a, a retro round formula. Did you enjoy that? Oh, I do. And I think that, uh, you know, this year we didn't do anything in the car side of it. Last year we did. Well, actually, last two years we did. But um, it's fantastic because we get to reenact what our heroes drove when we grew up. So it is quite nice to, to go back into that sort of. Uh, space in time. And uh, and look, not only us, but a lot of teams put a lot of effort into it. And, and really for us, although we didn't do the car livery, we've, we did merchandising livery and other stuff. So uh, it, we were still into the spirit of it. Um, but, it, you, know, um, you know, for us, Autobahn, which is our sponsor, really doesn't have a long depth of history in the sport. So, um, and that's what it's all designed for. Let's find out about those heroes. You were born in the 70s. Who were your motor racing heroes as you were a kid? Uh, well, I grew up here in uh, Victoria, just in uh, actually out at Yarrambat, Northside. And, uh, you know, growing up, I remember sitting in the lounge, you know, watching Bathurst, watching races. My father was heavily involved in the sport as a, as a scrutineer. Um, and before his time as a scrutineer, he actually did his apprenticeship as mechanic with uh, the Holden dealer team, which is back in the 60s. So... Hence why I think I became interested in motorsport because Dad grew up building race cars with Harry Firth, uh, Peter Brock, you know John Harvey, um, all those guys, Larry Perkins. So for me, it was almost in my DNA. But I grew up, um, you know, playing AFL football, cricket in summer, and racing go karts. So that was my three chosen sports growing up as a, as a as a boy. And, and of course, cricket sort of faded away. I wasn't really good. I was more of an all-rounder. I didn't sort of really do too much. Um, then sort of AFL and go-karting then took the top list. And it really was a point where I, I got actually to about 18 uh, where I was still playing on and off football, but I, I actually injured my knee. So I actually pulled the pin on that side of it and I continued in the path of the, of the four wheels variety. And, uh, you know, through go-karts, uh, I grew up here uh, as I said, and my Eastern Lions was my go-kart club. And it was actually based at Whittlesea. Now it's up at Puckapunyal. And uh, there's been a lot of drivers that have come through our our club. You know, Cameron, Cameron Conville, um, Jamie Winkup, he raced there. Um, so really for us, for, for a small little country uh, club, we, we've hopefully developed and, and produced a lot of good drivers. But through that era, uh, I met a lot of good people and, and had a lot of friends. So even at school, 
you know, after school and race weekends, I was working on a go-kart, not going out clubbing or doing anything or partying and doing anything. So I, I sort of grew up pretty uh, boring, I suppose, to, to most people. But it got to a point where Dad said, all right, what are we going to do now? We got to sort of at the age of 16. Uh, we're going to continue in go-karts or we can stay in go-karts or we can now progress into the next level, which was then Formula Ford. And I said, well, I'd like to try and keep going. So we sold all the go- go-kart parts, trailer, everything, bought an old Formula Ford. Uh, it was an, a Van Diemen 85, RF85, back in uh, 1990. And, uh, and then, of course, then we built that up. We raced it in uh, 91. Uh, we got then recognised by a couple of people that have helped us along the way. Um, we got then to race in 92. And then we won. And then we actually got a factory drive for Fan Demon uh, here in Australia. And we won the series in 93, which then opened up the sort of door to other things. And, and we actually went to Europe, racing the Formula Ford Festival, which was a brand's hatch at the end of 93. I actually met uh, Russell Ingle for the first time, who was racing over there. And, uh, you know, we had a great battle with um, Tom Christensen, who went on to win Le Mans and other races. So, again, we've raced against other, other drivers that have, that have gone on and, done, and been very successful, household names over in Europe. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, that was the dream to stay there. We came back and, uh, and then started our life in a, in a supercar. By definition, Craig, motor racing is a very expensive business. You talked about the people who identified your talent. It's a it's a big gamble for them, isn't it? Early on, when you're an untried driver, yes, you're showing some signs, but it's a gamble to get someone and say, okay, I'm going to back you because I think you've got what it takes to get to the top. Absolutely. Go-karts is still the, the, the most cheap or most cost-effective way of getting into it. And I still th- thoroughly believe that even if I wasn't become a race driver, full-time race driver, that I, what I've learned in go-karting helps me drive on the public roads and everything else. So I encourage anyone that wants to get involved in that side of it, go-kart's still the cheapest way to get involved. Uh, but, yes, it was – my, my parents funded the go-kart period uh, as we got into the Formula Ford side of it. Again, we bought as a family the first Formula Ford. Uh, but then as we went into our second year of it, there was actually a gentleman in Sydney who was, I was racing against. He actually had two daughters, uh, teenage daughters, and weren't, weren't interested in motor racing. So he really wanted to sell his, his race car, um, which I then, uh, in, in a sense, adopted. I, I went on to race it at the end of 92. And with that program, he was really impressed. And, and he actually bought us the 93 Van Diemen with a factory drive. So we're quite lucky that we... And I say lucky, but we, we sort of made sure that we, we had those stepping stones to, to gradually build on it, not just think that we're going to win it in the first year or the second year. We, we sort of set, set our goals and we achieved every goal every year. Just as a supplementary question, you were talking about footy. Who did you barrack for? Uh, I still do barrack for Essendon, so, right. uh, which has been a bit funny because when I grew up and I was a teammate with Brock, Brock was an avid Collingwood supporter, loved mm. him through and through. So people think I still follow Collingwood, but I've actually been a, a black and red man all my life, and uh, uh, and for me it's been fantastic. I've been out to the club a couple of times. Um, you know, it's, it's it was... For me, AFL has always been my other sport, and uh, you know, now living in Queensland, it's, it's sometimes hard to find it because they're all NRL up there. But uh, you know, we still follow them quite, uh, and we all got close this year. I think that uh, next year we could be have a cracker year. So let me draw a little bit of a footy analogy, and I often say to people on this program, young fellas coming up through the ranks. So if you've a young fella coming up through the ranks at Essendon, and you go in the dressing room, there's Simon Madden, there's Paul Vanderhaar, all of those heroes. What's it like for a young fella lining up on the grid for a big race for the first time and looking around and seeing some of the people that you've idolised? Uh, 
For me personally, um, Sandown uh, back in 94 was the first time that I was rubbing doors with those iconic people. And for me, I was um, you probably have a little bit of arrogance because you don't really sit in the dressing room with them or a transporter. You're just out there and you're basically trying to see them as your competition. So for me, um, but then saying that, like when I was sitting in the transporter with Brock, Thomas Mazira and Brad Jones, who it was back then, um, that was for me, you know, an unbelievable feeling to have firstly the experience to be part of that team, but then to, to get out there and rub the doors with them. And, 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 and for me, I, I remember I got a bit of backlash at the beginning because maybe I was a bit bolshy and, and um, a bit pushy, but you know, that you've got to obviously have learned, you've got to earn respect and they're not going to give it to you. And, uh, and, and like as that year went on um, and, and 95 went on, I started to get respect from the older people. And then, through that, you're able to communicate and talk to them and, and, and learn from their mistakes. Now, Brock was very instrumental in helping me develop as as understanding the sport, the corporate side of it, how to be able to present yourself. And I remember lots of times, you know, he his car broke down or something happened, but then he'd go into a corporate facility and go, oh, well, you know, that's just character building. That's part of motor racing. You know, next weekend we'll move on, we'll build, rebuild the car. And then, of course, you know, he'd say, oh, but back in 1972, you know, I was driving the XU1 Tirana around Bathurst and, you know, lap 143, the gearbox started to have a bit of a whine and he had this m- magical recall on things. And I'd be in awe because I was born in 74. So he's talking about something that I was never ever around for. So um, for me, that was a great time in my life. And then you look at today's, you know, Toddy Harrison, um, Toddy Hazelwood, sorry, that's that's in the, um, you know, the, the category now as it as what I was back then. And you know, I'm I'm more than happy to have a sit down and chat with him. And uh, you know, Toddy's great. He's you know he's he's well grounded. His family's right behind him. Um, it reminds me a lot of me. You're only mid-40s, but in lots of ways you are an elder statesman of the sport. And by the sound of it, you're well aware of your standing in the sport and what you can do for the younger fellas who were just like you 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I think now the, the younger generation, and I'm not going to say that I did it the hard way, but the, the younger generation now have got a better pathway. So now we've got out of you know the junior categories, we've got uh, Super 2, which is a category, same car, category below, and then, of course, you come into our level. Um, but the, the, the competition hasn't changed. So you come out of Super 2, you're a winner in Super 2, and then all of a sudden you're thrust into our level and you're dealing with now 26 champions, not just six or seven. So the, the competition hasn't changed, but the pathway has become much easier. But, um, but yeah, hopefully we've got some wisdom and some, uh, you know, uh, experience to be able to feed that back. And I've always, like Brock was with me, I'm always very willing to be able to, if, if someone wants to know something or wants information, how to deal with something, um, I'm, I'm, I'm an open book. I, I'm, I have no problem with that. Like even with Jamie, when he first joined the team, he struggled a little bit, you know, but he had great potential. He matured as the years that he was with us in the early days and he's become a, a massive champion. Young sports people get into the ranks and they have a bit of brashness, a bit of bravado about them. And that's just understandable. Is brashness and bravado a good thing when your life is on the line every time you get out there? Do you have to learn to temper that and temper it pretty quickly? Depending on how much it is, um, certain drivers, yes, we've 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 sort of pulled them aside, and and we have a uh, you know um, um, a, a sort of an official sort of um, op, um, people that obviously look at and and regulate the driving standards. And uh, if we go on above that, well, then obviously they'll stand or step in and stand in. Uh, but then it's also, I believe, up to the drivers in a sense to have a little bit of driver. Um, community and basically pull them aside and say, look, you know, yeah, you got away with that one this time, 
but don't forget, if you're going to start bumping and rubbing, it's going to come back. It's not just going to be your way. It's going to be two-way. And, you know, they soon learn that, you know, yes, yes you've got to try and, as I said, stamp your authority, but you've got to do it in a, in a progressive way. You've got to do it in a, in a mature way. And, as I said, we've seen drivers that have tried to do it too quickly, too much, and then, unfortunately, some of them get spat out the other end because then they become an issue and a liability for, the, for, for us driving and because we all complain if it gets to that level. We look at you from the outside and we see a very eloquent, well-spoken young man. Was there ever a time because success came quickly to you that you found yourself maybe just getting a little bit ahead of yourself and you had to pull yourself up or have you always been the sort who could keep his feet on the ground? I'm sure I have been. There's no doubt. I, 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 I would say probably no, but I'm sure there'd be people to say yes. I do remember back that I had very good grounding as as parents and a family and uh, for me I was very humbled to be able to get the opportunities to get what I did at the time. Uh, the team back then uh, were very instrumental in doing a lot of media training because again it's not the driving sense anymore it's the complete package you want to be you now we're representing a brand and and a, and a team so you just don't want to get up there and talk like a billboard you want to be able to communicate um, you want to be able to get the message across in the way that we need to get across. So um, the team were very instrumental in that side of it, the media side, which I was very fortunate and lucky enough to be part of that and understand that. Um, but then again, you got teammates like Peter Brock who were the best in, in that field. And you learn and you absorb a lot from that and you learn how to deal with certain, um, oh, I suppose, situations, whether you had a crash, whether you've, you know, you've hit someone off or you've done something, how to, how to control yourself, how to um, get around it, get over it, deal with it. Um, but as, as, as time goes on, you become, then you, you become more focused in, the, in probably the other side of it, which is the commercial side of it, the understanding of getting up and doing more sort of emceeing or hosting and other stuff. So you do develop as you go along, but it's not everyone's cup of tea. Some drivers still don't do that. Um, but I enjoy that side of it and I always will. I'll explore a couple of things on the other side of the break. One is Peter Brock, the name that you've mentioned and, and the pall that was left over Australian sport with his untimely passing. And two, another thing you said about crashes. Well, it's a, it's an occupational hazard. You have a few, but I want to ask you about one particular one at Calder going back many yes. years ago. When we come back on the other side of the break, Craig Lowndes is my guest. Great to have him along for This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, Celebrating Lives. What a great pleasure it is to have six times Bathurst champion Craig Lowndes with me in the studio. Craig, we're talking about Peter Brock. You can't talk about motor racing in Australia without mentioning the name of Peter Brock, but what are your memories of that terrible time where he lost his life way too soon in 2006? Uh, yeah, it's one of those things that, that people talk about the moments of or, or memories and thinking back on where you were, what happened at a certain time. Um, and for me, yeah, I'd just come back from a function. I remember laying down in bed at home because it was a, an early morning and uh, and the phone was ringing off, off its head like it just continuously rang and no one ever did that and then the rumor started to to filter out that you know peter had passed and then of course you still didn't believe it but then you turn the tv on and there was more and more information coming through and and then all of a sudden at that time um where i was uh three choppers actually landed on the farm and uh we got in it got into the uh channel nine chopper and we went back to the studios and uh, they did a live cross with uh, jason bright myself and, and a few others and and just 
um, you know, had memories and talked about what he did for us as as drivers, as our sport. And um, and for me, it was pretty uh, emotional because it's you're right. He left way too early. Um, but then you look at the circumstances and some of the things that you, you've now gone on to to learn about that incident. Um, you know, the the incident really was a rally, tarmac rally. He didn't do the the pre run of the or the course. The notes that the, the co driver was reading off were wrong for the corner. Um, that tree. You talked to locals that had actually taken other victims. So it was just a, almost a recipe for disaster. Was there a moment for you, and I guess for all of your fellow drivers? when the news was announced that you thought if it can happen to him, it can happen to me. Oh, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, I said at the time, I remember sitting doing an interview, I'll never do a tarmac rally because it, that's the way he passed and that's the way I felt at the time. And I still have no ambition to do a tarmac rally. So for me, it's, it really, it did hit home. Uh, and you, you, as I said, you start learning the ingredients of what, why it happened or how it happened and and in a sort of in a sense, some of it, you know, him not doing a pre-run of that stage was not him. So whether you know he got caught doing other things, or you know, he's very good at talking to, to people and media. But uh, you know, that was the that was the the sad thing, and and maybe part of it because you know Brock was so good at driving around everything and anything at any given time conditions. Maybe he just didn't didn't think that it was going to be an issue. But you know, we all now know what what reality is. You won Bathurst that year, not long afterwards. I know it's like asking which one of your children you love the most, but is that special for that reason because it was not long after he left us? And it will always be. And I think it was always the most emotional race I've ever done, but it'll always be the the best race. It'll be my my, my, almost, um, uh, for me, to... To start that week leading in, we knew that the emotions was going to be high because of why we're all there. Not just the drivers, but teams, fans, everyone was all there. And I, we were a Ford team back then, and I, I made a call into Ford to say, because um, I had an a, a opportunity to drive that 72 Tirana on a parade lap on the Sunday morning. And I rang Ford and I said, you know, I would dearly like your permission to be able to do this. And they said yes. And that for me was, was, a, was fantastic because it was – it wasn't about a brand. It wasn't about sponsors. It was about a person. And they allowed me to drive the car around. And I've, I've re-driven the car in uh, 2016, 10 years passing. And um, and for me to do that parade lap, to have the cars all parked up on, on uh, pit straight, have them in a silence, uh, to Bev come up and give me a hug you know, straight after that, uh, to walk back to the garage, uh, that was like for me, uh, the longest walk I've ever done. Up pit lane to get back to the garage. I remember walking into the garage. I, I had tears coming down my eyes like everyone did. Roland, um, our team principal, was basically saying, no, we'll put Jamie, start the car. We went, No, I said, no, I want to start this car um, and I want to finish this car and everything in between, who cares? <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and that for me was, was the, you know, starting the race, we weren't the fastest car. Scaife had to put it on pole. Jason Bright was alongside him. Scaife had, had uh, buggered up the start. Then I got caught up in another incident, so put him out of the race. Brighty was then the next fastest car. He had some issues, so he went out of the race. It all started to unfold for us. So as the day went on, for me, I remember those last eight, ten laps, you know, having a great battle with Rick Kelly. And Rick was obviously you know one of the Holden factory teams back then. So we seesawed for eight, ten laps, 
and then but it wasn't until you turn the corner for the last time and know that you cross you can cross that line that it, that's when the emotions hit you you know what you've achieved and what you've done and to stand on top of the podium to have about 100,000 people below you all cheering you on doesn't matter where as I said what manufacturer you were driving for you were there for one reason did you get the feeling that day there was a sense of destiny about the whole thing? Did that cross your mind at um, all? I'm not superstitious, but there were certain things through the day that it really unfolded for me. And, and there was no doubt that it's during that race. I, you know, I, I kept saying to myself, you know, keep focus. Come on, Brocky, give me, you know, give me a hand. Like I, I you know, I wanted to do it for him. Uh, you know, again, as I said, I'm not superstitious, but the gap between Rick and I as we crossed the line was 0.05. It was half a second. So and that was Brock's number. He carried that for all his career. So yeah. there were certain things in that day that went on that I have no doubt that that he had had hopefully played a part in. And uh, um, for me, it's uh, it, it started a three-peat, which again only Brock's ever done. So again, it it it, it really um, for me uh, was just a, a part of my life and. And I still talk to Bev from time to time, and uh, you know, as I said, it's uh, it was really emotional because not, not only for me, but my dad, because dad was, as I said, part of the Holden Holden dealer team back then. Um, I went to, and the background for me with Brock, probably just quickly, is I grew up here. As I said, I went to the same high school as Brock. I played AFL football at Diamond Creek, same football club as Peter. So we did reunions of both high school and football club, not just just motor racing. It was other things outside of motor racing that had a connection with him. We learnt from that incident, as we said before the break, that um, an occupational hazard is that you're going to have a crash every now and then. Let's go back to Calder Park, <laughs> 1999. Is that the big one? That for me was a big one. Six rolls, I think five and a half, six rolls, um, and I still put it down to a bad start. And I, I and I've seen the, the vision just recently, actually, and uh, on the front row. That car was brand new, and uh, I think it was a meeting old, but it was pretty, literally brand new. Scaife got away. Brydie passed me. I was going down the inside, and I remember about, because back then it was old H-pattern gearbox, so I was going to go from third to fourth in the gearbox, which is about 160, 70 kilometres an hour. Um, and then I had an impact from a uh, left-hand rear quarter. And at that point, it actually put the car up on its side, but then the tyres uh, popped off the rim. The rim dug into the bitumen. The car went onto its roof. And at that point, I wasn't so... Um, nervous because the car was in one station, although upside down. We're, we're skidding along the bitumen. I can still recall it. The, the windscreen shattered as soon as I went upside down. It, it glass went all over me. As I'm skidding on my roof, I'm thinking, well, this is not too bad. And if anyone sees the footage, you might even see the brake lights on. So at that time, I had uh, enough presence to take my hands off the steering wheel, put them onto my helmet because we didn't have hands device like we do now to protect my neck. I put my right leg, jammed it on the brake pedal to brace myself into the seat to, so the seat could do its job. What I didn't do was brace my left leg. So as it then started to barrel roll, Again, a little bit of luck. That last or second last roll, it actually tripped and then bounced on top of the concrete wall instead of a, a sudden thud. Um, my left knee was throbbing. My right elbow was throbbing. You know, I heard Greg Murphy, Neil Crompton. There was a, like eight or nine drivers that were ripping doors off the car trying to see if I was okay. Um, got myself out. Um, the long story short is my, my right elbow was bruised bone because I was trying to go out the window. Luckily, at that time, we um, uh, introduced a window net which then again, if I didn't have a window net, my arm may not be with me anymore. Um, and then, But what I didn't do is brace my left leg and, and course, the seat's there to, to brace you from above your knee to your basically your head. But, of course, I didn't brace anything below my knee. So the, if you can imagine from your knee to your ankle, it was whipping from side to side and it tore all the ligaments off my knee. And uh, although I didn't break any bones, it, it did all the ligament damage. So end up getting a, a left knee reconstruction and, uh, and about, I think it was eight weeks later, or 10 weeks later, I was back in the car racing again. So if I read you correctly, you're not sitting there thinking, 
I wonder if this is it, you're thinking, what can I do to minimise the damage in that time? Yeah, absolutely. Because at the time I was upside down, I actually thought it wasn't so bad. Um, didn't appreciate, obviously, the speed you're still travelling at. But it wasn't until it actually slid off the bitumen, got into the grass, and then it started to barrel roll. That's At that moment, it was like, oh, okay. But then I was... I was lucky because the rollovers took a lot of the energy and the inertia out of the car. It slowed up gradually. It wasn't like I just hit something solid and it come to a sudden stop. So for me, a lot of the lot of the process of way it went definitely helped me uh, have more time to then brace myself and get myself ready for an impact. Is it important for you to get back in the car as quickly as possible after that? Uh, it was, uh, and we were still in battle of a championship. So I missed a round. The round was at Tasmania. Cameron McConville filled in for me, which was thankful because it absolutely teamed down raining that weekend. So I, I was sitting at home. Pissed out. Well, I would have, but I was being polite. So um, <laughs> it actually teamed down down there. So I was sitting at home watching on TV thinking, thank God I'm not in the car. Um, we had bigger breaks between races back then. So I actually then um, went through a really intensive uh, rehab. Uh, I had to prove to Cam's and the sport that I, I could extract myself out of a car. Um, so if I wasn't get back in the car that I can get out of my own, own uh, esteem. And of course that, was literally walking across the, the workshop floor and climbing up onto a bench. So I sort of dodged that and I sort of put all my um, force through my right leg, which was my good one, got up on top of the bench, went, aha, see, can do it, let me back in the car. And uh, I raced, my next race was Winton. And uh, to be honest, right through practice qualifying, even the first race, I was really timid. I, I didn't have a good feeling. And it's one of those things that people talk about, getting back on the horse or the bike. I really didn't have a good feeling until I got through that first race where I had other competitors around me. I had a bit of bumping and rubbing and everything else. I'm like, well, this is not so bad. This is going to happen and I'm not going to end up on my roof again. So then you start building confidence. And, and, and we actually won the championship that year, And uh, uh, although we missed a round. So uh, very fortunate and, and very thankful for the team. They were very supportive at the time. We're just about out of time. We'll take our final break. And one thing we haven't mentioned for the entire duration of the show is the R word, retirement. <laughs> and apparently we need to talk about that, although I wonder whether the, the urge might just be a little bit too much. We'll find out when we come back on the other side of the break. Our final segment with Craig Lowndes on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral, Celebrating Lives. This is Your Sporting Life with Peter Donegan for Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Our final segment with the great champion Craig Lowndes on This Is Your Sporting Life, retirement. We touched on it before the break. You've made the announcement. What prompted that? Uh, I think that it, when's the right time? That's probably the bigger question is, is when does anyone know when the right time is is to step down and it, and I've said to I said in the, in a couple of the, the um, interviews it's a chapter of my book not the book so I'm not stopped driving um, I'm still going to be a co-driver next year I still you know am really focused on doing other races outside of Australia as well as inside more things like Le Mans 24 hour things that we haven't been able to do because of supercars and the calendar and the fixture we've got. Um, but last year, I, I had a really poor year. It was every now and then, every sort of five, six years, you have a lean year. And I had a lean year last year, and, and people were yelling and screaming over the media sense and saying, you, know, you need to retire, you passed it, you don't have it, get out, get it, give, give your seat to some other young driver. And then, of course, you come back this year, and you, you're really focused to turn that around to start with. You win a race at Tasmania. Um, you get on the race, and, you, and you, you know, you're in the top three, four of the championship. You make your announcement of, of retirement, and then go, oh, well, you're retiring too early. And it's like, well, you can't win. 
but it's the right time for me. And that's the biggest thing is, is when is the right time? So Roland and I have been talking about this for the last four years. Like, when is the right time? Um, and Roland's always said, you know, long as long as I stay fit and I stay competitive, you know, go on as long as you want. But it is really, for me, at 22 years now at this high level of the sport, the commercial side of it is becoming more um, intrusive of what we do day to day, week in, week out, uh, which I enjoy. But then it takes a little bit of focus away from driving. And I still love the driving sense. So you really got to balance things up. And for me, as I said, 22 years at the high level, still love it, um, still enjoy it. But really for me, it, the passion now is, is, is it 100% there? Um, that's a hard question. And if I can't answer it and if I couldn't say to you, yes, it is, well, then you've got to start thinking about what you're going to do. So for me to be able to step down, still be an ambassador for the team, for the sport, um, take a role in, up in the broadcast in some way, uh, still co-drive for either Jamie or Shane going in the next year and beyond, that for me fits a, a better bill and, and what I want to do and what I want to achieve now. So hence why I say it's a chapter of my book. I'll step down as a full-time driver um, and then basically uh, you know, look into a new chapter of my life next year. So for me, I don't wake up. I haven't woken up since that announcement in Townsville that I ever regret it. So for me, that's a good gut feeling that I've done the right thing. Now, as we get towards the end of our chat, you've already said you're a Bombers fan. Yes. I want to draw a little analogy for you. If one of your great Essendon players at the time had have said, I'm going to play for Hawthorne, you would have been absolutely disgusted with the whole thing. Yes. Is the motor racing analogy going from Holden to Ford? And what follows after that? Oh, it is. And I think that, uh, you know, I've been quite fortunate enough. I've been with, I, I actually worked out the other day, four race teams in my 22 years. So for me, I, I feel like I've been quite loyal. Triple um, Eight, which I'm currently with, Roland and I have had a long-standing relationship, been over a decade. So for me to be able to stay at this team is an indication that, A, that I, I enjoy the, the atmosphere of what the team is. I, I I thoroughly enjoy dealing and working with the, the, the workers and, and I'm, you know, the guys downstairs, um, the girls upstairs, but even, you know, um, everyone, I still enjoy that side of it. So hence why I've stayed with Triple Eight for such a long time. Um, and really for me, I've – actually, when I had this conversation with Roland, Roland said to me at the time, look, you know, I've got a contract with the team next year. He says, I'll rip that up if you want to go drive somewhere else full time. And I said, no, I don't. Like, I don't want to do that. Like, yeah, going – and I, I I remember when Buddy left Hawthorne and went to the Swans, Jamie's an avid Hawthorne support. He was bleating. <laughs> he did not like it. Like, you know, Buddy done the 10-year deal and all this sort of stuff. He was devastated. If he retired, I think Jamie would have been more, as you were trying to say, like he'd be more acceptive of it. But mm. to go to a rival team, no, that's not on. Last question. You've got a couple of kids. Mm-hmm. If they came to you and said, Dad, I want to follow in your footsteps, would you encourage them or would you make them aware of the pitfalls and the dangers of your profession? I think, well, to answer the question at the moment, Chili's 13, she's right into horses, so she wants to do barrel racing and other stuff, which is great. I'm really encouraging that. Levi's 15, he's into motorbike or motocross racing, which, you know, when I'm not doing this, I'm spannering him and getting dirty. So I think. The beauty of, of what they've seen me go through and the lack of time I've been home and everything else, not sure whether they want they, – they enjoy the car side of it, but the, the whole complete package side of it, I don't think they enjoy it, which hence why I think they're going in their own path. If they came to me and said they want to be you know race car driver or a go-kart driver, I still embrace it. Um, but what I want to do and what I don't do with the, either of them is I don't tell Chili how to ride a horse and I don't tell uh, Levi how to ride a bike, but if he – 
falls off, and he's done many a times, and he spits the dummy. Then I'll stand in for the for the phys- uh, for the mental side of it, the physical side of it, make sure he's okay. But the the mental side of it, I will step in. But I'm not going to teach him how to ride a bike. Hence, he's better than me anyway. But he's um, the that side of it. I'll leave to trainers and other professionals. But you know, for me, hopefully, just it's just the mental um, pathway of, of still keep enjoying the sport for what it is. It's been brilliant to relive just parts of your great career. Um, and as you've told us, it's going to continue going on, perhaps on a little bit more of a drip feed. We wish you well with that. Hopefully, it's a, a great uh, ride around the mountain for you later on today. And good luck with the Bombers too. Maybe that flag is not too far off. Things oh. are starting to change. Thank you very much, Peter. Look, I hope so too. Look, I'm, as I said, I'm avid, avid red and black. So uh, fingers crossed next year. Thanks, Craig. Craig Lowndes joining us on This Is Your Sporting Life for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives, another edition with another great Australian sports person coming up at the same time next week. Hope you can join us then. Sometimes needing new tyres can catch us by surprise. That's why tyre power gives you the power of zip pay and zip money. You can get what you need now, get back on the road safely and pay for it later. Terms and conditions apply. So visit tyrepower.com.au or call 13 91.